right, Mark chapter 11, and we're in verse 1. We introduced all this last time, so tonight I just want to go down through uh, the passage here and look at and catch the details and uh, see what's going on, because this passage leads us into the, the last week of the life of Christ. He's on his way. He's coming into uh, Jerusalem. Uh, he's doing some things here. And uh, as he does that, he's, verse 1, And when they came nigh to Jerusalem unto Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples. And again, uh, John 12 is the counter. Uh, this is recorded in all four Gospels, so it's very significant. Each Gospel obviously records the information based upon the portrait that they're painting for and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Matthew, as painting him as the king, has more information. Mark is painting him as the servant, so nobody cares. We want to know what the servant can do. That's all we're concerned with. It's like the birth of Christ. Matthew has the genealogy with Joseph. Mark, we don't care where the servant came from. We just want to know, can he work? Luke does the genealogy of Mary. John, there's no genealogy because John portrays him as God. That's who he is. Luke portrays him as the son of man, the, the human touch. So here, he's going to, so he's on his way to Jerusalem, John 12. He goes to Bethany, spends the night, and then goes in. He's there with uh, Lazarus and them. So he comes to Bethpage, the house of the unripe fig is what that means. And it's going to be very significant when we get down to the fig tree and the curse there and so forth. And then Bethany is the house of affliction. So we have him coming to uh, the fig tree. Uh, by the way, the, the fig tree down in verse 12 and following is the only miracle that the Lord does that was a miracle of destruction uh, where he cursed the fig tree to be barren. And then if you look across over at verse uh, 21, and Peter calling to remember it, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. So... Here we are. We're we're in the house of uh, we're we're in the house of the unripe fig. We're at Bethany, Bethpage, and uh, he's gonna do some things. And again, look over at John 12. Just we're gonna flip over here in a little bit here as we go through. But if you look there at John 12 verse 1, then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus, uh, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead, there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him, then took Mary. So you got Lazarus and his sisters Martha and Mary, and that's where they're at. So they're in Bethany overnight, on the way to Bethpage, come back to, to uh, Mark 11. And again, Mark is focusing in on that ser servant issue. He's, so there's not a lot of, of the narrative here. And you can go look at Matthew and you can look at Luke and John and you can fill in the details. 
verse uh, 1, he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, Luke eleven two, 2, ye shall find a colt tied upon uh, tied, whereon never man sat, loose him and bring him. So go get the colt, okay? Verse 3, and if any man say unto you, why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. So he's on his way to Jerusalem. Fascinating scene here. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's uh, preparing to go into Jerusalem. He's on the Mount Olives, and yet he's right here going into Jerusalem on that very day we saw last time with, in the uh, Daniel schedule and the prophetic picture there. He's on, that, he's on that very day that Israel is out selecting the Passover lamb to hold it, to watch it for three days, and then to kill it on the 14th. And here he is. He's going to be going in, but he's going to go in on the colt. And again here, he's presenting himself to the nation. And, he, uh, and again, he's just those who have the eye of faith, they recognize him, they understand who he is, and they believe who he is. And that's why last time we looked at the issue that what he's doing here has been prophesied. He's fulfilling prophecy. If you come over to, so here in his first coming, now if you come over to chapter 13 of Mark, verse 26, there is a second coming. Uh, there is a future coming when he's going to come back. Mark 13, verse 26. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now, when he comes back in this manner, it's not going to be Zechariah 9, 9. And we're going to run over there here in just a minute. It's not going to be that. He's going to come back, and, and this is his second coming, verse 26. And when he does, he's going to come back in, in a manifestation of great power, and Matthew says, and great glory. So Mark 11 is a different coming. Now, run back to Zechariah 9 and just remember, remind ourselves of Zechariah 9 and verse number 9. Now, Zechariah 9, 9 is, being, is going to be used in Matthew, Luke, and John. Mark doesn't use Zechariah 9, but rather what Mark uses is Psalms 100 and, uh, 118. And we'll get there in just, in just a little bit. But look at Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. So here he is, the king's coming, okay? But how is the king coming? He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, upon a, a, a colt, the foal of an ass. So he's not coming in great power and great glory. Zechariah 9.9 9 is saying what? Here he's coming. He's not even riding the, the, the adult donkey He's on the baby donkey. So he's, think about a donkey. That's not a, that's not a thoroughbred. It's not a stallion. It's the lowliest animal in that kingdom 
all right? He, it's the worker ant, stubborn too, and yet there he is. So when you come back to Mark 11, here we have him. He's, he sends two, two guys out, get the colt, okay? And again, Mark doesn't even talk about mom. He goes, get, get the baby. Now, the mom and the baby come together. Matthew and Luke and John say that, and there's a reason for that. But if you'll notice there in 11.2, uh, whereon never man sat. So he's unbroken. He's not the mom, not the adult, but yet he, here he is. He, he's on this unbroken, unridden baby, and he says, untie him. He's on the little one. Now, you'll notice he sends two men out. Those represent both houses of Israel, the northern ten tribes and the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. You have two animals going out. And again, Mark is only going to focus in on the one he rides. He's not focused in on the other. So you got the two men, the two houses, but then you have the two animals. Uh, and again, because of the two houses, but also in Israel, you have that believing remnant and you have that unbelieving, that apostate aspect to the nation. So here comes the king. He's coming into town and he's presenting himself as the sacrifice. The, he has to, he, he's presenting himself as the redeemer first. Now, he is the king. By the way, Zechariah 9, there's several things in 9.9 that hasn't been fulfilled yet. It's coming, but 9.10 and following hasn't been fulfilled yet. Yet here he is coming not in full glory, but yet really, verse 3, And if any man say unto you, Why do this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him. He's literally coming in poverty. He can't even afford a baby, a baby donkey, nevertheless, even a mom. But notice the authority that's here, the authority of the king. You're going to find the colt, so he knows where the colt is. He's unbroken. He's tied up. Loose him and bring him. And, and when they ask you, what are you doing? You're going to say on the authority of the king, the Lord, he has need of him. So at his word, they're going to let you have the colt. But also, he can't even afford the colt. So you've got a picture being painted here of the sacrifice going, the lowly and meek. This is, where they, this is their stumbling. You know how Paul in Romans 11 said they stumbled, but they don't fall? They stumbled over the Messiah. This is what they're... Why? Because they're looking, Israel knows their king's coming back, but they think of him coming back, Revelation 19, on the white horse, leading the charge, you know, raw power, great glory, great power. And so they miss this first one because he's coming back as their redeemer, as that Passover sacrifice. So what happens here is the authority of the king he has need of it, so he, there's an acknowledgement of dependence. And again, Paul says, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we might be made rich. 
So in his humanity, he, he lays aside that display of his great power and glory so he can come and enter into the limitations of our humanity, live in them, and then ultimately go die in our place. So you see, Mark is painting a picture here He's focusing in on him being the serving king, his servanthood. He's not focusing in on the power. By the way, nobody cares if the servant has any authority or has any power. What do they want to know about a servant? Can they do the job? You know, as a worker in doing the bus yard, can you do the job? That's all they want to know. They don't want to know anything else about you. They just want to know that, and that's what we're seeing here. When he rides in, he goes out, he gets the colt, there he is. And again, that colt, uh, come back to Job. We looked this last time, but just to remind ourselves. Job 11, the donkey, the colt, the foal of an ass, the donkey, Job 11, is a picture of human nature. It's a picture of, of the nature of unsaved man. And uh, here's the lost of Israel, if you will, as a picture. 11, uh, 11, 12. For vain man would be wise, though man be born like a wild ass's colt. If thou prepare thine heart and stretch out thy hands toward him, if iniquity be, and off he goes. Notice, though man be born like a wild Asks, natural man in his nature is a creature of total reckless rebellion, wild, unbrokable, uh, unbroken, unusable. That's man. But it is also the condition of Israel because Israel is also the son of Adam. Yes, they are the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they're also the son of Adam. And when you come back to Mark 11, that's what the Lord's been dealing with Israel throughout the three and a half years here. The three years. That, yes, guys, you are the descendants. Yes, you are my people, but you have a spiritual problem, sin, that needs to be dealt with, and I'm here to deal with that. So they, So Israel... Just as any man needs a redeemer, Israel needed a redeemer as well. The, once the redeemer's there, then they can become that, the, the chosen people, the true Israel of God. But they don't understand that, and that's the problem here in, in the Gospels. They do grasp the nature of the kingdom. They're going to call him... Uh, verse 10, uh, Mark 11:10. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. What they know, they know what the kingdom is. They know the true nature of the kingdom. They understand that they're going to get a literal, physical, visible, earthly, Davidic, David, Davidic covenant fulfilling kingdom on the earth. They got that. The problem is, is what they don't get is the redemptive side. They need to be redeemed. Okay, and that's what the Lord's showing here. Blind Bartimaeus calls him uh, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. 
he, they know who he is. They understand what's coming. They're just missing the spiritual, the redemption issue. So Mark 11, verse 2, you got this colt. He's tied up. They go get him. He, he, they loose him. Whereon where never man sat. Uh, <laughs> Jesus tells them, the colt, that wild, that wild, unbroken, unusable nature of man. Jesus says, whoever commits sin is what? A servant of sin. You're bound, you're bound by sin. That's man's problem. What's the colt? Tied up. No man sat on him. Completely unbroken. Uncontrollable. Wild. No way to control him. And so what, is he, what does this guy need? What does a colt need? He, well, he needs to be loosed and brought to the Lord, to the Savior. And that, again, that picture that he's painting here, verse 3, And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And they went their way. And found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loosed him. Think about that. They go and they find him by a door. Two ways meet. Moses says to Israel, I lay before you life and death. Two ways. Choose life. The Lord talks about the, the straight way and the narrow way. The door, John, in John 10, the Lord says, I am the door. I, here it is. So here is Israel's lost condition, and yet here is the opportunity that the Messiah is bringing to them to believe, to get it right, to, re, to be redeemed. And Mark puts it all together there for them. Not, he's not scattered them out. He's, it's neatly packaged. Verse 5. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye, loosing the coat? And they said unto him, unto them, even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. So on the word of the Lord, on the word of the king, the authority, the power there. Is that rain? No, that's a car. It scared me to death. On I don't know. That's an engine. Thank you. All right. Good man, uh, young man with good ears. <laughs> it was just really loud all of a sudden. So anyway, on the, on the authority, on the power, here's the word of the king. Get the way and let's go. Verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him and, sat, and he sat upon him. Now think about this. 11-2, no man has never sat on him, okay? Mark, again, he, he just, what do these guys do? Mark's painting that picture of the servant. Can he sit on the colt? Can he do what needs to be done? What's happening here? So Mark doesn't go to Zechariah 9-9. Rather, Mark go, Mark's going to quote Psalms 110 or 118, but go to Psalms 110, and we'll see this. 
He sat on him. He has complete control, complete authority. Psalms 110. So he, Mark doesn't, Mark's intention is here is the servant and what can he do? Here's his work. So what does he do? He lays a garment, they put a little garment on him and he sat right there and off they go. Psalms 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord said, shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Now, Peter quotes this in Acts 2 about what is happening uh, after the, uh, in the ascension of Christ. When Christ ascends up, remember Acts 2? He said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here until I make your foes your footstool. That's Acts 2. Foes are different than enemies. An enemy is an enemy, but a foe is an enemy that's actively engaged against you. So now what are we going to do? So we got this. Now watch verse 3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauty of holy, beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. Now, notice what's that. Thy people are willing. When Christ comes, now think about that colt. They go, they get him, they untime, they bring him. No man can break him. No man sat on him. Yet when the Lord comes with a word, he gets on him. So the picture here now shifts in the cult to a group of people that are completely submissive to him. They are completely trusting him. So now we have the believing remnant and we have the little flock. So you've got that cult going to represent, again, two, you got adult mom, you got the baby, you got the two men. So now the cult is going to picture the issue here. Go back to Mark 11 so we can. The cult now is picturing there the people are willing to be ridden. They're trusting him. They're in complete, total confidence in him as Messiah. That's who he is. Mark 11. So they cast, verse 7, they cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strewed them in the way. Now, what's a, what comes up in verse 8 is, wait a minute. If many are singing Hosanna, then why in the world, who's killing him in a few chapters? What's going on here? If they're so excited here about who he is, then why at the end do they crucify him? Well, it's an understanding of who the many is. Come on, come back over with me to John 11. And the many here, when you think about the many, he's not talking about the citizens of Jerusalem. By the way, they're the ones that are going to crucify him. But rather, he's talking about that crowd, that multitude that's been following the Lord uh, from Galilee, out of Galilee, into Jerusalem. 
11.55, And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country to, up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So we've got many, and what are they doing? They're out of the country. They're going to Jerusalem. Now watch verse 56. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye that he will not come to the feast? They are waiting for him. They are looking for him. Will he come? Will, what, so the many is not going to be the, just the citizenry of Jerusalem. It's actually that great multitude that's been following him. What do they do? They recognize him, who he is. They're excited. Hosanna, here he is. Bam, he's the son of David. And they're the ones that are doing this, not Jerusalem. Now, if you come down into chapter 12, if you look at verse 12, on the next day, much, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now there we are. See, we got much people. What did they they find out he's coming? There's Mark 11. That's where we're at. What do they do? They take the branches of the palm trees and Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord, verse 13. That's who they are. Now, verse 1, then Jesus six days before Passover came to Bethany. So that's where he's at. He's with He's with Lazarus, he's with Martha and Mary. They got the supper there. Look at verse 9. Much people. See how we got much people, much people, many. So we're not talking about just the citizenry of Jerusalem. We're actually talking about that multitude that follows him. It's an interesting thing, verse 9. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, one whom, also whom he had raised from the dead. I guess everybody wants to see the dead man walking. He's the dead guy. He's raised. There he is. Let's go touch him. But, now watch verse 10. Not everybody was happy about that. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. They already had a plot to kill the Lord. They're just going to add Lazarus to the mix. Why? Because verse 11, that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. They were going to kill him. So when he comes down, you can come back to Mark 11. When he comes down out of Mount Olives, he's on that colt. There's a lot of people who've been following him all along. So it's not so much of the people who've been living in Jerusalem it's just rather that great multitude out of Galilee. So Mark 11 here, verse 8, we have the, they, um, they cry out and they, they lay out the, the palms, the branches of the trees and strode them in the way, verse 9. And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. So again, here, and that's a quote out of Psalms 118. So we'll go back there. But here is the presentation of the Lord, just as Zechariah 9.9 describes, but also, look, look, look back there at Psalms 118, 
what Psalms 118 says was going to happen. So, again, Mark isn't after Zechariah 9. He's after Psalms 119. I'm sorry, 118. Matthew, Luke, and John, they take care of that. And, again, Zechariah 9 isn't all, that verse isn't to completely full. By the way, 9.10 is the second coming, great power and great glory. But Psalms 118, if you look there at verse 24, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And again, this day, we looked last time at that schedule out of Daniel 9. That's at the end of the 69 weeks. I know this verse goes to church a lot because it says a lot of things we like to get across to everybody. But this day, the end of the 69 weeks, it's right on time. It's right when he's entering in. Verse 25, save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. So that save now. So the Hebrew word for save now, okay, is the Greek word that was written right on over into English that's Hosanna, okay? So the Hebrew word that's save now is the Greek word Hosanna which is the English word Hosanna. It's a transliteration. They just took the Greek word and moved it right into English. But it's Hosanna. So that's where we're at. Okay? It's time. Save us now. Hosanna. Here he is. Son of David. King. Boom. He's here. Verse 26. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the, uh, out of the house of the Lord. That's fulfilled here here he is god is the lord which hath showed us light bind the sacrifice with cords even under the horns of the altar christ he's coming down and what's he doing he's offering himself as the sacrifice it's time to have the offering the sin offering the trespass offering the peace offering that passover lamb it's time right on schedule it's time. That's what bind the cords. I'm sorry, bind the sacrifice with cords, even under the horns of the altar. That's where we're at. So the great question comes up, what if the nation of Israel had believed that the Lord was the Messiah? What would have happened? Well, in Matthew 11, he says that if you'd have believed, then John would have been who? Elijah. He would have, but, he, but you didn't. So he can't, comes in the spirit of and the power of Elijah. But had the nation believed that he was Messiah, what does Psalms 118.27 say they would have done? They would have bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar. They would have still had to sacrifice the Messiah. That's what the prophets are required. That's what the law requires. They just wouldn't have done it, as Peter said, with wicked hands. Okay? So when you think about that and you work through with that, what the Lord is doing here in Mark 11 and Matthew and Luke and John is he is, all of the contingencies are there and all of the obstacles have been removed. And yet Israel and her unbelief refused and that's the problem so when you come back to mark 11 he puts himself he presents himself 
I, I think about that. Here he is. He's, he, there's a good faith, legitimate offer of himself. If you'd have just believed, I'd have went over there, we'd have done the sacrifice, and we'd be in the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of the contingencies are there. He's there. John the Baptist, i.e. Elijah, is there. The Lord, By the way, the second witness is the prophet, as like unto Moses. That's why you hear Elijah and Moses. Well, who is he? He's the prophet. He'd have been there. But what happened? Their unbelief got them. They refused to believe. So Mark 11, this is not a triumphal entry. This is a meek and lowly entry. Now, he will have a triumphal entry. It's called the second coming, where he's going to come back and uh, on the white horse and the white stallion and great power and great glory. But yet here, he's not doing that. He's coming back to present himself as the sacrifice, as the redeemer. He's getting ready to go to Calvary. We're right outside the week here. And they just still refuse. So 11 verse 10, Mark 11:10, Blessed be the kingdom of our father David, that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Again, they understood the very nature of the kingdom that they were looking for. They know what kind of kingdom they're expecting, which is a literal, physical, visible, earthly kingdom. Their problem is their timing is off. That's coming in on the second coming. They had it over here in the first, so they missed it. They, don't, they didn't understand the difference between the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ. Psalms 22, that thing in 1 Peter 1, they don't get that. They're off. So they, they're in a predicament here. And again, blind Bartimaeus, thou son of David, son of David, they understood what was going on here? They understood the kingdom. They understood that the, he's the Messiah. He's the son of David. He's our king. By the way, they are not in the mindset of Christianity today that says that the, reign, the kingdom is God's ruling and reigning in the hearts of men. So it's a spiritualizational thing and all this other stuff. They're, they don't say that. Nowhere in Scripture do they say that. You know who says that? Goofball evangelicals say that because they got nothing else to do. But the thing is, is what are they looking for? They're looking for that literal, physical, visible, earthly, Daniel 2, 44 and 45, Davidic, established in the Davidic covenant, and that's where they're looking for. And they know it. Therefore, that's why they say, Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. They understood the very nature of the kingdom, that it was exactly what God's word said it was to be, and not all that other stuff. There's nothing here about social justice. There's none of that here. And I know people use this stuff and they make it and twist it, but that's just not they understand the very nature of the kingdom. And the fact is, is that when this kingdom comes, 
It's a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and that's what they're looking for. Okay? So he comes in. Now, verse 11. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Now, Matthew, Luke, and John, they have a lot of stuff happening between 10, verse 10 and verse 11. Okay? Not with Mark. Again, Mark's not interested in all of that dialogue. He wants you to see what the servant is doing. Okay? Jerusalem, the great city of the king. The temple. He goes into the temple. The temple is the very heart of the nation of Israel. That's where God's throne was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was set and the, and the cherubs and all that. So he comes into the city. He goes to the very heart of the nation and he looks around. And he gets in there and he, verse 11, he looked round about upon all things. Eventide, the end of the day. He spent the whole day looking around at the temple, and then he leaves. So he comes into the temple and does an inspection. He doesn't say anything here. He just comes in, he looks around, he looks at the heart of the nation. What, by the way, what does he see? Corruption, exploitation, injustice, pride, hypocrisy, Nothing for him. Vain worship. He doesn't find anything for himself. They're supposed to be worshiping him. They're not. So he leaves. Now he's going to come back the next day. But as he goes out, again, he inspects the heart of the nation, finds nothing but corruption, no real worship of Jehovah. So then what does he do? Verse 12. And on the morrow, when they were come unto Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came in happily, he might find. Hap, happily, perhaps, perchance. Okay? He might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of these hereafter forever, and his disciples heard it. And again, the result, verse 20, And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou uh, cursed is withered, Away. The, again, the only miracle of destruction, of judgment here. Every, okay, everything else that the miracles are of restoration. Now, what's key here is what he's doing and the timing of it. Think about this. He comes in presenting himself as that Passover lamb, the redeemer, the, sac the true sacrifice. He goes into the temple. Looks around at the heart, no, nothing here for him. He leaves. Runs into this fig tree. Now, the fig tree, the, there are four trees in your scripture that describe the nation of Israel, that represent the nation of Israel. The olive tree, the 
fig tree, the vine tree, and the bramble. The vine tree represents the national life and history of Israel. Okay? You go to Isaiah 5, Psalms 80, and you see he plants a vine in the land. The fig tree represents the religious life of Israel. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they go out and do? Remember? Operation Fig Leaf. They made up fig, they took fig leaves and made them up. You know what they did? They're using religion to cover their uh, shortcomings, their failures before God. That's what religion does. So God gave one religion, he, and he gave it to Israel. It's called pure religion. Later on, in the Lord's day, he calls it the Jews' religion. They've corrupted it. Okay? What does he do in the temple? He goes in and he sees that corrupted religion. The corruption. And again, Paul, talking there in Galatians 1, says the Jews' religion. We'll see, by the way, in John 11 there, it was the Jews' Passover. Well, it shouldn't have, it should have just been the Lord's Passover. But it's not any longer. They've corrupted it. He's on the way. He sees this fig tree. And what has it got? It's got leaves on it. So what do you expect? Fruit. When you, leaves are on a fig tree, leaves are a sign of life. There should have been fruit. So it has a profession of life, yet there's nothing there really. There's an outward demonstration. You're looking good on the outside, but inside you're just dead men's bones. You're a white sepulcher, and you're empty inside. They're professing to be God's people, yet they're really what? Of the Father, the devil. They're not who they're saying they are. So there's no fruit on you, verse 14. No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. Now, we're going to spend more time in these passages because we're getting close to the end of the hour. But I just want you to see the feel here and the flow. Okay? If you don't identify, if we don't identify the tree, the fig tree properly, okay, most say the fig tree is the national life of Israel. And they use Matthew 24 and the budding of the fig tree. And then they say, well, see, in 1948, they became a nation. And the, so that's what we're talking. But in 1948, what was God doing? It's called the dispensation of grace. That means he's interrupted Israel's program. So this isn't the budding, okay. But if you say it's the budding of the fig tree, then here we have a problem because what did he just curse that nation to? No fruit forever. And that's forever. Okay? Now, but, so you, gotta, you have to rightly divide what, what's happening here. Okay? So then no fruit forever is in relationship to Israel's religion. Now think about God gave Israel the only religion ever. The Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant. What is he doing? 
He's on his way to go to the cross, which later he's going to say is the blood of the New Testament, the New Covenant. The Hebrews is going to tell, the Jews tells us, because we can read it, that the, old, the, the New is making the first covenant go away. See? So when he curses the fig tree here of no fruit, because it's the religious life of Israel, what's he going to replace it with? The messianic, the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. You follow that? It's important to see because what do we all, again, we always hear the budding of the fig tree, Matthew 24, being, no, that's not the national life, it's the religious life. So Israel... <coughs> They know that he'll give them a covenant that will replace the Mosaic covenant. They know that. Now watch verse 15. And they came and they come to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrow the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Now, He's been out, he's went into the temple, he sees the apostasy of the heart of Israel, unbelief, no true real worship. He runs into a fig tree, curses it, the religious life of Israel is dead, it'll never produce anything. That old law, that old covenant is gone away. Then he turns right around the next day and goes back into the temple and then cleans it out, cleans up the temple. He cast out, verse 16, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. By the way, who carries the vessels through the temple? The priests do. See, the pre when, when in the temple worship, you would bring your sacrifice, your lamb, the, to the priest. He would kill it, take the blood, go put it over there on the altar of incense, and then come back and finish up, you know, butchering the animal. And he would carry the stuff through what has the priesthood been it's been usurped now they're going around wanting to be called father in the marketplace and the long robes and all the attaboys and the accolades verse 17 and he taught saying unto them is not is it not written my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer but ye have made it a house a den of thieves that's where we're at. The reason that Christ cleans the temple is he's taking all of the commercialism, all of the corruption, all of the exportation, and he throws it out. Now, he's not really, all that stuff he's not really after. He's after that vain religious system that's, that's propagating all of the commercialism, Okay. One of the saddest things out there is the commercialism of Christmas, if you will. Okay, not that it's it's not the birth of Christ, but they just have what to, they've just commercialized it. See, the real event of December, the end of December, is the virgin birth part, the virgin conception part, not the birth. The birth was just like everybody else's birth. But the thing is, is there's this great commercial. And what's driving that, that adversarial, that vain religious system? So he's walking through this, and he's moving through this. 
He's cleaning it out. And what I want, again, we're going to go back and start in verse 12 and catch the details and look in the Old Testament stuff. But just see the flow of what he's doing. He comes in. He stops all the false worship. He cleans out the false profession. And he's getting them ready. He literally is cursing the very heart of the nation of Israel because of its apostasy. And he's getting them ready for all of his death, his burial, resurrection, and so forth. By the way, this is his second time he's cleaned out the temple. He did it, John 2, in the beginning of his ministry. Now here at the end of his ministry, three and a half years later, and you know what? Nothing has changed. The nation hasn't changed. It's rather gotten worse. Verse 18, And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished, and I love this, at his doctrine. The Lord had doctrine. A lot of preachers don't have doctrine, but he had it. And what do they do? They go out and they... They see the cursed fig tree. It's all withered up. Israel, they don't get it, the lack of faith. And again, Mark is moving on. He's bam, bam, bam. Why? Because he wants you to see the flow. Israel's condition, that apostate condition. And he's doing all that he can to bring them to some understanding of who he is and what's going on. And they're just, all they can think about is killing, killing, killing. So there's a flow here now. Again, next time we'll go back through and catch some of the doctrinal details for Israel. But what I wanted you to see tonight was this is not a triumphal entry. A low and meekly entry as he's going in to be offered as that true lamb. Israel rejects him. He goes into the temple, looks around, sees the heart. No, no, that vain religious worship comes out, curses the fig tree, deals with that, comes back in the next day, cleans it all out, and all that Israel can do is let's kill him. Let's kill him. Okay? So not a pretty scene right here, right now in, the, in Israel. But that little flock, that believing remnant, the multitude, they're right there, and they're with him, and they know who he is. Hosanna, son of David, king King, time to bring it in. Let's go. Problem is, is not the timing. That's why the question in Acts 1 there, is it, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Because it's not time yet, guys. <laughs> Calm down. Relax. we got things to do. And they get there. Okay? All righty. Five minutes to spare. Pretty good. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for the look here into the cross, into the timing into your thought process, into, into your consideration and, and your desire to do for the nation and their complete rejection. And Lord, I just pray that we would take it to heart for us as well as we think about these things that we would just be careful for, our, for ourselves and what we do and say for you. In your name we pray, amen.